I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers on the Homeless Crisis. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. You can find me and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Lisa Evers. And you can catch up on all of our Street Soldiers episodes, both Hot 97 and Fox 5, free of charge on my website, lisaevers.com. Now, in this episode, we're focusing on the New York City homeless crisis. The city's homeless population is on track this year to set a record high. Tens of thousands of people, including more than 20,000 children, are in homeless shelters on any given night. Last year, more than 100,000 people sought help. That number is bigger than the entire city of Albany, the New York State Capitol. Now, the recent murders of four homeless men by another homeless man whose family says he was dealing with mental illness and severe substance abuse issues underscores the danger that many people face. But in terms of the homeless, when it comes to the homeless, a lot of what people are going through, we don't really see. We just don't know how they got to that point. We don't know what's the best way to help. So let's get a clear picture of what's going on and some perspective on this from our great panel that we have for you. Joining me is Melody. She was formerly homeless. She works in the financial industry, and she's the founder of the organization No Voice Unheard. Melody, great to have you with us. Thank, Thank you, you so Lisa. much. We appreciate it. Also with us is MZ. He was formerly homeless. He's been for many years now a street outreach counselor helping people. Um, MZ, thank you so much for being with us. Not a problem. We appreciate it. Also joining us is Dr. Elisa English. She's a clinical therapist. She's worked for more than a decade with the homeless population. Dr. Elisa, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Elisa, you're one of the specialists who go out and help the city get an idea of what the homeless population looks like, where it is, what it, what's going on with it, how many there are. What did you, what have you seen the last time you did that? Well, you know, it, let's put this in context. You know, it's about 500,000 people homeless in America at any point in time. So we do a point in time count. What you usually find on the streets when you're actually doing those counts, you're looking at things like substance use issues, mental health, you know, people who have been disconnected from their families. The opioid crisis has really affected our uh, neighborhoods across the country in a really horrible way. And so you're not really seeing like the what homelessness really looks like. Actually, homelessness is in many ways, it looks like all of us, you know, it's all of us are really a paycheck from being homeless, right? And so it's important for us to put everything in context. It's not just about like those individuals who are on the street who actually need a certain type of recovery help or supportive um, help to get them to a next space in life, but it's more about how are we dealing with the policies that impact and affect those who are homeless? And we're going to talk, get into those policies as well. MZ, tell us a little bit about your situation. You uh, were in a shelter at one point, you told me. Yes, I was in a shelter at one point. Um, and when I was in the shelter, the one thing that I seen, there was a lack of compassion. There was a lack of compassion. There was a lack of understanding. People didn't care who you were, where you were from. It was like an assembly line. You're here, do this, do that. It was just... No compassion. Nobody sat down and talked to you and made you understand that, you know, what was going on, what was the process, what can we do, how can we do it. It was just numbers just pushing you right along. Psychologically, what, where were you at in your life that you ended up in that situation? Uh, bad relationship, poor decisions, and to be honest, I, I thought shelter had become a part of the urban culture. You know, going to a shelter, everybody was saying, yo, just go to a shelter, just go to a shelter. And it became a part of the urban culture, and I accepted that as my reality. You know, today I know that's not a reality. That, that's not something that somebody should accept willingly. Right. There should be other alternatives. It shouldn't be 
you know, he turned 21, just sent him to the shelter. It shouldn't be that... Right, if they try, if they age out of the system, like foster care you're talking about. Right. It shouldn't be, let's put them in a, in, in a shelter. We should put them elsewhere because people don't see how horrible shelters are. Melody, one of the things that we don't see is we don't see the number of people who are middle class working and then something happens to them. And then, as Dr. Lisa said, you're one paycheck away from being out on the streets. Tell us about your situation, because you, you had a thriving, and you do now again, right. which, is, which is great, and congratulations on, on rebuilding your life after everything that you've gone through these last several years. But you had a, were making a really good salary, and tell us what happened and how you ended up in a women's shelter. Well, I was working corporate, and I lost my job. I was wrongfully terminated, <coughs> and during that point, um, I had no source of income. Um, I couldn't pay the rent. I was about $1,000 short from what I needed. And um, they evicted me. And at that point, I lost everything. Being that I don't have a strong family support system, I am my only support system, I landed in the shelter system. And um, when I landed there, it was a reality for me. Because making so much money, I never realized that I had to save money just in case for a rainy day. And that's when reality hit for me, where I got to see a different side of life I wasn't used to. And then in terms of your circumstances, because you were, you, you were in a relationship and yes. you, you and your partner had the apartment, right? Then he left. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to do, you know, carry on the rent for yourself, which, by yourself, which you're doing or you were doing until, until you, lo you lost your job. In, ter in terms of your, your safety, your feeling of safety when you went into the shelter, what, what was that like? Well, when I first went in, it was ironic <coughs> that I was told that my safety was going to be at Jeopardy. I was going to the fourth floor and there were no cameras. Um, the lady that was at intake, she didn't even want to register me. She told me I was too beautiful to be in a place like that. But I explained to her I had no other alternative but to be there. So she advised there were no cameras. There were 20 women per room. Um, my first night was very tough. I was threatened. It was kind of feeling like I was in prison. I've never been to prison, so it was a new reality for me. So it's kind of you become, you adapt to your environment immediately. You know, it's very unsafe. There are no cameras. You become a number. You don't even have a name anymore once you step in there. Is it a, like survival, basically? You're, yes. You go into survival mode? Is that yes. an exaggeration or that's the accuracy? No, that's what it is. It, it was like you were walking yourself into prison every day at 10 o'clock at, at, at night knowing that your safety was at jeopardy. I couldn't even sleep. And at the same time, I was looking for jobs. So I would wake up at 6 in the morning, get dressed, and go right into a corporate meeting looking for a position and have to you know, keep a smile on my face and keep going during, knowing that I was going through that situation at night. So it was very hard for and me. And try to keep that hidden from you. Yes. Do you think there's people that we, that we all of us encounter on a daily basis in the course of doing our jobs and, you know, living our lives and everything that are probably don't have a place to sleep that night that we don't even know about it because they're just... Yes, I think people are very ashamed to say that they're struggling, to say that they may be homeless or may be facing eviction. And it's something that we need to be very clear and very truthful within ourselves and say this is what I'm going through because there is help but there's not much help for the middle class working people right. as myself because I was told from the start that I was not going to get any assistance being that I make a lot of money. Even though that was in the past. Right. right. So I didn't qualify for anything. I was just there to sleep and have a bed. Because they went on your last year's income which was Correct. a good really high income. Yes. That's and in crazy. New York City we have a housing first model which means as long as you have a roof over your head, your house, then you're no longer eligible home, for right? all those things. Right. We're going to talk about eligibility and, and who needs what and are they getting the services they need. That's coming up on Street Soldiers. We'll be right back. Hey, yo, this is Pat Post with Lisa Evers. Put your thinking caps on. Street Soldiers. 
Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the New York City homeless crisis, and have we got a great panel to break this all down for you. Joining me is Melody. She was formerly homeless. She works in the financial industry and is founder of the nonprofit organization No Voice Unheard. Melody, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Also joining us is MZ. He was formerly homeless. He's currently a street outreach counselor. Um, MZ, great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Dr. Elisa English. She's a clinical therapist and works with the homeless population. Dr. Elisa, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. MZ, in terms of the services, because you're out there on the streets going around, you know, s s helping people connect with what's available, what is available for them? If you find somebody on the streets, what's Tell us what the encounter is like. Well, the first thing, if you find somebody on the street, you have to find, you have to ascertain if they're having uh, mental health problems or if they're having um, substance issues. And most people don't want to go and address mental health issues. Right. They don't want to address the mental health issues. They'll, they'll try to, you know, uh, continue sedating themselves with, with substances. And above all that, I, I want to make a point that a lot of people don't want to go to these hospitals because they feel ostracized. They don't feel like people, the, the stigma, the stigma with homelessness, they have this, so many stigmas around it that, you know, they talk to one another. Homeless people talk to one another. I don't want to call, a, I don't want to use the name, but there's a hospital in the Bronx that you can't find a homeless person to go to that particular hospital because of the way they treat the clients. They walk through the door. I, I've taken them there myself. They'll walk through the door. The receptionists will frown at them. You know, people will treat them like they're trash, and nobody wants to go there. So the services, there are some services, but the services are limited. You have to find a service where people can really relate to them, not where they're just trying to swipe the Medicaid card, but where people are going to relate to them, welcome in, and really assist them. Dr. Alisa, is there, is there, are there enough treatment facilities? Because one of the things we've been seeing are a lot more people who appear in a state of extreme distress. I, I don't right. have a, you, you could give the yeah, clinical definition, but you know, yeah. it's just, you can tell they're not right. Something's very, very wrong. Well, you know, recovery and, and to, to receive services is self-directed. So you have to be willing to accept those services. I believe that there are many services related to recovery and healthcare and, you know, medical services, but people also have to want it. And when you've gotten to a point where you've lost hope, and you've lost a sense of dignity and trust for systems that have been um, sort of given the, the, the charge to care for you, you no longer want to engage in those services and get and receive the support that is available to you. Um, I think when you, we're talking about mental health, a lot of times we sort of lump mental health and substance use as that is the end all and be all to homelessness, and it's just not. Well, no, obviously, yeah, obviously not with MJ, and, and obviously not. not with Melody. Melody, in terms of you, the, the safety issue is is a really big thing for for a lot of home, for a lot of homeless people. You were you in fear for your life there? Were you in fear? I was in fear for my life with the people that were staying there, and as well as with the security guards, because I had got into an altercation with a security guard, and she got really aggressive. You know, and I just think, like I told her, we all live from check to check. Unless you have a lot of money saved, you can land in the same position. She could be on the other side. Correct. And I think we all have to remain that we have to be humane. Because I do believe with the love, with the power of love, it can heal a lot. You know, if we just spread love and we give love when someone approaches us in that situation, it can change a lot. Because any of us can land in that situation. Definitely, and and help erase help erase the stigma. Yes. In MZ, in terms of the in terms of the violence and in terms of the the safety issue, 
a lot of we were all shocked when we heard about the murder of the four homeless men in Chinatown because there they were in Chinatown because they had been kind of pushed down the Bowery. They were there sleeping. It was about two o'clock in the morning, you know, on a Saturday morning, and then they were brutally, very, very viciously attacked. What was your reaction when you heard about that story? Um, were you surprised? Did you say, nah, you know what? I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised because one thing that I learned as an assessment specialist, I seen that a lot of people were coming to uh, the facility I was working at from prison. A lot of them were coming from prison because they didn't have where to go, and if it wasn't that, a lot of people were being released from uh, New York State Mental Health Hospital, and they were being released from there. Family didn't want them. They had no place to go, so they would send them to the shelter. But they were sending them to the shelter, and I didn't have a folder telling me that this person was schizoaffective, they had bipolar disorder, that they had uh, suicidal ideations. I didn't have any of that, any of that information. People were coming there, and I, I had to assess them and put them in areas that I felt were right for them, and then they got uh, assessed again, and hopefully they got to the right place. But the system absolutely doesn't tell you who you're putting into a shelter. And one thing I want to point out, uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people, there's a lot of gangs, a lot of gangs in shelters. A lot of these people can go and stay with a family member, but they'd rather stay there and sell drugs, make money, and do whatever. I'm not saying that applies to everybody. But I'm saying there's numerous of places. Most people you talk to, if you ask them if they're in a big shelter, there's gang members there. And the gang members pretty much control that shelter. Well, homeless people are also very vulnerable, and so people prey on them. So it's a, it's a space for people who are selling drugs and doing all sorts of illicit acts to kind of go to have a sort of concentrated population to engage in those activities. I think, unfortunately, when it comes to the homeless population, many of them um, do suffer from certain mental illnesses that aren't necessarily treated. It's not necessarily the diagnosis, it's the treatment. And so they're not necessarily adhering to whatever medication regimen. How can regimen. they? They're, they're trying to get food here, trying to stay out of the rain here, trying to get in from the... There's like no routine. So how can... Is it realistic to expect them to if they're supposed to take medication at a certain time every day or twice a day, that, that they could even follow a protocol like that. Well, right, yeah, right. Um, but medication has also helped them, helped them to stabilize. So, and, but they also don't really like the side effects of medication. They've been self-medicating for so long that that has been a better coping skill for them. Um, but, you know, it, at the, the bottom line is, you know, when it comes to mental health, it's very complex. Homelessness, and when you look at all of the different feeders to homelessness, whether it's um, formerly incarcerated, foster care, all of the different institutions that feed homelessness, they never really, even the deinstitutionalization movement in the 60s that kind of, you know, really just threw people out on the streets with no real plan for what they were going to do next, the system has failed them. And when you look at it, it's really a system uh, issue of social justice. Like, this is really around social justice, and when you're treating people, like, is the possibility of America still possible for most people? Well, that's a, that's a question on so many levels. Melody, when you, when you heard about what happened to those men in Chinatown, did you think th th this was, were you like, thank God I'm not in that situation anymore? I mean, what, it what saddens went your mind? me because I live in the Bronx, and there are many places in the Bronx where I know that homeless people sleep, and I do go there once a week to feed them. So it took a toll on me because I've never been the same since I left the shelter. I mean, I see homeless people and it saddens me every day. I don't think I can ever get over that because I know what that feels like. And people look at them as if they're dirty, they're infected, they're not even human. And that saddens me that New York is like that, being that we're in a space where we're not even being liked by our own president, not to bring that up, but 
you know, I mean, we have to be humane. Even if we pass someone by, just be courteous. Give them a dollar. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to make you bankrupt. It's not going to make you poor. It's okay to have that in you to want to help, you know. So, I mean, it did sadden me because there should be more resources where people feel safe to go to a shelter and seek the help that's needed. But it's a multi-billion dollar operation. And we're going to, I'm going to cut you off on that point. We're going to come back. We're going to come back to that point. So on the one hand, people say what they're seeing on the streets and what they just encounter every day. It seems like there's no help available, but there's billions of dollars mm -hmm. being spent mm -hmm. to help the homeless. We'll find out where is that money going when we come back. Yeah, this your boy Rolling Stone P. And make sure y'all check out the Street Soldiers with the beautiful Lisa Evers. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the homeless crisis. Joining me for this conversation is Melody. She was formerly homeless. She works in the financial industry, and she's also founder of the nonviolent uh, nonprofit organization called No Voice Unheard. Melody, great to have you Thank with you. us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Also joining us is MZ. He was formerly homeless. He's a street outreach counselor. MZ, great to have you with us. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Dr. Elisa English. She's a clinical therapist, and she's been working with the homeless population for more than a decade. Dr. Elisa, great to have you with us again. Thank you. Thank you so much. The question everybody wants to know is, show me the money. Scott Stringer, the city comptroller, said that the New York, New York City now spends $3.2 billion dollars a year, which is more than double what it was about six years ago. Where is that money going? We're seeing a lot of, it seems to the average New Yorker, we're seeing a lot more people on the streets in obvious distress and obvious need of help. Where is that money going, Dr. Lisa? Well, it's going into transitional living um, uh, facilities where people can sort of have, you know, both their supportive services and housing all in one building. Um, there's some unique um, funding streams where you have the, the for-profit and not-for-profit collaborating together in order to build, you know, buildings that can support um, low-income families and individuals. You have single residency occupancy in um, uh, facilities where people can live that are coming out of the shelter. So, I mean, the money is there. There's Medicaid dollars to help with, you know, supportive services like, you know, health care, medication, and medical appointments, and all sorts of things that you need to stay healthy. Um, but, you know, it's very difficult when you, when you look at on the streets and you see so many people suffering, you wonder whether or not they have access to the services. Do so, they? I believe that the, the services are out there, whether or not the messaging around where, where they are and how to access them is clear, we may need to do a better job at so, that. So basically, MZ, so that if, if you or any New Yorker, you see somebody out on the street, they're, they're definitely distressed or they're, they're, on the, they're on the ground, like on the sidewalk. It's pouring rain. It's snowing. It's just, you know, you call, you call 911 and you say this person needs to get needs to get help unless it's like a weather emergency or it's declared some kind of like other type of emergency the police can't pick them up they the ambulance yeah, can't right. pick them up yeah. right right it's, it's up to me to try to convince them to go to the shelter but uh i don't know if people understand the perception that shelters have in new york people have a perception of shelters i have i know many of people that would rather sleep outside than go inside of a shelter well this was the case with the four men that were murdered they, and some of the other uh, some of the other homeless men we talked to said they would rather be out on the streets. Yeah, and that's horrible. That's something that needs to be addressed. That whole system needs to be addressed where people feel safe in there. Even you know, I was speaking. I was listening to her speak a few minutes ago, and I kid you not, I'm six feet, two hundred ten pounds, and I felt a little threatened in the shelter. Wow. Mm. I 
but in, in term, when you're when you're out on the street and you see somebody who's you can you can tell from talking with them they're incoherent and not that that necessarily means they're they have a mental health issue but it's you know because being out on the street that's super it's got to be like unbelievably stressful but it's like how do you how do wh what can you offer or what can our system offer somebody who's out there they they look totally disoriented they look like they're obviously suffering what what can you do or what can we do as a society in that situation? To be honest, you can talk to them and find out what their main priority is. You have to see what right. their priority is. Their, yeah. their priority might be just to eat right now. Right. It might be just to eat. It, it might not be trying to find shelter. Shelter is not everybody's priority. You know, people might have it in their head that this is normal now. I've been sleeping in the street for so long, you know, it's normal for me right. to sleep in the street, panhandle, you know, get a Metro card, swipe people on and off the train, even boost. They accept that as normal. It's only when a person reaches rock bottom that you're able to show them some type of clarity. And, and Melody, you, you, your your situation was very clear. It was very rock bottom. <laughs> and so tell us what happened. So, yeah. how did you come to that particular shelter? And, and take take us through step by step, if you don't mind. Well, that was the largest women's shelter. I'm single with no kids, so that was the only place for me to go. And they would assess me after 90 days to see if I qualified for a voucher, which I didn't. Um, so at that point, I realized I was just there to sleep. There was no assistance that they can give me. They couldn't guide me anywhere. I basically had to just save the money for my apartment to get out of that situation. But then tell us what the day is like. Do you have to, because some of the shelters you have to check support. in. Yes. What, was there case HRA, management? They have management. HRA there mm -hmm. that runs your name into the system. They put your income in there to see what you qualify. And once they put the income in there, it will generate mm -hmm. which voucher you're, you would qualify for. Meaning voucher, meaning which program? Uh, City Fabs they have. They have links. Um, Tebra. Yeah, they have a couple. Program and you yes. didn't qualify for anything because no. you have been making too much money. Correct. So tell us what your day is like. Like, do you have to do you have to go through a metal detector to metal walk? detector as if you're going into prison? Um, you have to give your number. You don't give your name. You go upstairs. It's a walk up. There's no elevators. It's an armory, so it's um, about 300 steps before you get to where you need to go. Um, once you're in there, there's no cameras. There's no security on the floor. You're basically every man for themselves. So how did you in that situation? You, and you have to be out out on the street at certain hours too, right? 6 a.m. you have to, you, you're there at 10 for at your night. bed count, correct, and then 6 a.m. you have to get up and leave. And those are usually the assessment centers, right? Right, yeah. yes, the assessment yes. center. Yeah, the assessment centers. So how long were you at the assessment center? Two months. Two months, because you didn't qualify for any of these other programs. Correct. And then what was it like for you when you had to get dressed and go into, you know, you come into Midtown and get into a corporate environment and try to convince them that, yes, I'm the person that you can trust to manage your money? And that, your payroll. That, that's when my belief in God became strong because that's the only way I was able to do it because there were times I didn't even eat and um, I would save my money just to travel and face these interviews and pray to God that there was an opportunity for me to get myself out of the one I was in. And, and do you put your stuff, do you have a, like a little locker there you can leave stuff Yeah, in? there's a locker that people pick. You go to the bathroom and someone will take whatever's on your bed. I mean, my bed was kicked the first night there and I was told that she ran the place, and this is how things were going to happen. My first night there, so I had a bed bug on my neck. I mean, I had no pillow. They don't want to give you a blanket. You're basically sleeping in your clothes and sneakers on the bed. It's crazy. So it really, create, really, really can mess with your head. It can. As a woman, you would really lose value within yourself being in there if you don't have a strong support system.
And it really does go back to a support system. It we does. all really need a support system because when we when we all are facing these very difficult challenges in life, it's important to have someone that we can talk to, that we can count on, that we can go to to help support us through that because when we're relying on these systems that for whatever reason aren't really working well for us, it creates all sorts of mental health issues and challenges. MJ, when you hear when you hear Melody's story, is is that sound typical to you? Absolutely, it's a traumatic experience. A lot of people don't understand the people that the the trauma that people experience going through the shelter system. You know, her saying that you know you go through and first thing you see is a metal detector, and I I used to hear it a lot. People used to always say, "Yo, this is just like jail. This is just like jail," and it's ironic that we would model our shelter system after the jail system. Right. Even yeah. for even even in the family shelters, you have to go through metal detectors. Exactly. And the exactly. kids do. Rules and regulations. And the intervention was there designed to help deal with the safety issues that right. they were experiencing before the metal detectors. So right. Just when people it, were having you know, problems. The response is never good enough. It's yeah. never good enough. Because the true response is how do you create economic equity? Like how do you then create certain affordable housing? How do you create certain systems and make them more just for those who are more vulnerable what, and disenfranchised? What is it about race and class? So people of color are represented in ho homeless without a roof over their head, although white folks actually represent poverty more than any other group of people. So poverty and homelessness, there's really no correlation, although we tend to use that as the narrative. If you're poor, you'll actually wind up homeless. It's not necessarily the case. If you're black, your chances of becoming homeless is much greater. And why is that? Because think? we have systems that have been designed to disenfranchise people and we're not developing policies that really promote family, that promote a sense of economic equity, that looks at education, how do you fund that and create certain balances in society. We're not doing that here. We're trying to put a Band-Aid, which is not really a good Band-Aid to cover any of the very expensive Band-Aid. Right, very expensive Band-Aid, and we're not seeing the outcomes that we desire. And we also have to accept the fact that... Uh, the shelter life or homelessness, Come closer to the mic there, please. homelessness has become a part of the urban community. It's been accepted as part of the urban community. It's nothing for, you know, somebody to argue and say, all right, we'll go to the shelter. or, or we, it's, it's all right for us to push our people to the shelter system because we don't understand the shelter system. But we where did that come from? You know, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you read the literature. That wasn't the first step. You had grandma's house. Someone owned exactly. property. They're not pushing. You can't will anyone an apartment especially if it's an apartment that you purchased. Right. So right. you can build all the affordable housing that you want, but all I may come in come Unless out people of a situation. Own it, it's not it's not going to help your whole family dynamic. Maybe it came out of necessity because, you know, we, we all understand that we're all one paycheck away from possibly being homeless. So if I'm one check paycheck away from being homeless, then I might not be able to take an extra Burden on or extra mouth in my house. Well, we're it's also like, talking, but, but and, and also and also just to, to just to add from from my research and also reporting, is there's there's a lot of people there's there's a huge number of children and adults in New York City, um, w who are doubled up. You know, they're yeah. living with relatives or the kids are split up and they're in the grandmother's apartment or they're and ha you know they how have long? a shift of homelessness. So right. like their shift is from you're in the, you're in a house from nine to you know twelve and the next right. person's shift is from twelve to seven a.m. I mean you know and people like and like one that. thing that she pointed out is you know you can go to the shelter and get a voucher within ninety days. I know plenty of people with the vouchers, but where are you gonna use right. it? Right. 
you you Most know landlords aren't accepting those. You packages. get the housing vouchers and then they can't you use it. The There's no apartments available. No, no apartments available. They pay up, I think up to eight hundred dollars a month for a room. If you get a room, uh, your voucher can pay up to eight hundred dollars a month for that room. Nobody wants the voucher. Nobody. A lot of people don't want the voucher because they feel like uh, you get the voucher, something happens, then the city's not paying. The city's not paying. For so they feel people with the vouchers will ultimately destroy their apartment. Exactly. So the they, stigma. Right. We're back to the, the stigma. stigma. It's the liability because the voucher is only good for five years. So they must say to themselves, after five years, how is this person going to be able to pay their rent? They're going to land up back in the same situation. And if they mess up, then the city probably pulls the voucher, right? They, Absolutely. They, they invalidate the voucher. All right, we're going to talk about some There have to be some solutions. We're going to talk about solutions when we come back. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host. Stay tuned. Yeah, 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 salute. This is General Steele from Smith & Wesson, and right now you're listening to Street Soldiers with your girl Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people, only on Hot 97. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the homeless crisis. Joining me is Melody. She was formerly homeless. She works in the financial industry, and she's a founder of the nonprofit organization No Voice Unheard. Melody, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Also joining us is MZ. He was formerly homeless. He's been working for years now as a street outreach counselor. MZ, great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Dr. Elisa English. She's a clinical therapist, has been working with the homeless populations um, for more than a decade. Dr. Elisa, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Melody, in terms of your personal solutions that you found, so you're in the shelter. You have no family that you can that can help bail you out. Well, the long-term relationship had ended. Your fear for your safety. How did you how did you get yourself out of that to the point where you're at now? I'm gonna say it again by the grace of God. That's number one. And number two is saving everything I had. I saved up to four thousand dollars and I was able to get an apartment. Yeah. And then and then you got back into the in your field. Yes. And are working and everything. Yes. And what what did you learn from that, as we discussed, that, that you want to share with women, especially with young women that are just starting out? I learned that you can have it all and lose it in a matter of seconds. Mm -hmm. We have to humble ourselves enough to know that with God, anything is possible. And be smart. Save 10% of your check if you can. You know, I mean, we all want to look pretty, all want to be with the top name brands and things like that, but at the same time, you have to be very smart and save, especially as you get older, retirement as well. You want to have that in your in yourself to save and know that, you know, for a rainy day, I can go into my account and I can pay my rent, you know? At least have six months of your rent saved in your account. Right. And that's a growing population, the aging population. The well, the men, mm -hmm. and, and to go back to Chinatown, the, the men, the there was an 84-year-old man mm who are early 80s, 83 or 84, who was, who was one of the victims. MZ, in terms of the solutions, what do you, what do you see as these solutions? Uh, first thing we need to do is dispel some of these um, misconceptions about uh, shelters. You know, we don't want to keep embracing the fact that, oh, you can go to the shelter, oh, you can go to the shelter. Because, you know, a person can go to a shelter 90 days, you can get a voucher and still be in that shelter. You can be in that shelter two or three years with that voucher because there's no housing available. Oh. There's no housing available. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I have friends that, you know, do the right thing, go to school, get a job, making plenty of money, want to move out of their parents' house, but can't move out because 
can't find an apartment. Well, thank God their parents have a house. Exactly. The good thing, <laughs> and, have, and, and have the, have the space. Right. So the housing, right, because right. we had done a story, uh, and he ended up getting housing actually in NYCHA, where they, a, a single father, the apartment apartment burned down, the building burned down, and had three kids. Mm -hmm. And was in the, they were in the shelter for, for like almost, almost three years. Mm -hmm. And that was a big, when you're six years old, that's half your life. That's a regular thing to see people in the shelter for years. That's a regular thing because it's hard to find housing. However, on the you know flip side, uh, you know I've worked with people that we were able to get them a voucher, able to find you know take them apartment hunting. And uh, no, I don't want that apartment. I want an apartment in Manhattan overlooking the water. Self-directed. Uh, Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> but no. But so, what do you do in that situation? Do you kind of go like? Hey, reality check. Reality check mm -hmm. here. You're in the tightest real estate market, or one of the tightest real estate markets in the but country. It, it can't be a reality check for them if they're not living the reality. If they're not living reality, it can't be a reality check. Like they don't like the apart. Like you get them to that point where they got the apartment, can get an apartment, can get it paid for, right? They don't even have to pay for it. So one of the thi one of the new well, things right now, based, one of the new things that's going on right now is the city is renting hotels. They're renting floors right. and hotels and turning those into shelters. Right. So you're in a hotel where it's carpeted, you know, you got a key to your own door, you're going in. That's not every place. That's not everywhere. But, you know, you're in that environment. It's not as hectic. It's not as, you know, callous. So you can turn down an apartment. You can turn down a room until you get to the one that you think you want. Do they Any get maid service in the hotel too? Say it again? They get maid service? No, nah, they don't no, get they all don't that. Get maid but, service. but it's also the fact that when they move out of the shelter, they will also be responsible for at least a portion of support. their certain supports and a certain portion of their income. And so they understand that. So they think they can be have like certain choices around what they select as their house. That's why that's why financial management is important. In, that, like, which is what Melody was saying. Absolutely. That's the financial important. literacy. And we need a continuum care. So a person moves out of the shelter and finally gets an apartment, they need continuum care. They need somebody to go and check on them and say, hey, is everything all right? Can, is there anything we can assist But isn't that what caseworkers are supposed to be doing? Say it again. You isn't that what caseworkers are supposed to be doing? supposed to be doing. All right. Well, case management services is also optional. Being homeless is not a crime. It's a circumstance and a condition that sometimes we get up, find ourselves in, not from, you know, by any fault of our own. So you can decide whether or not you need um, case management support. And that's, again, the whole idea around self-directed care. So whether or not I want to live in, you know, Brighton Beach versus, you know, Howard Beach is the decision. Um, and whether or not I want to, you know, receive medication management and some other kind of case management services is something I can choose to do or not or follow up on any of my health problems. M Melody, in, ter in terms of solutions, what do you think could be done for to, to help people that are in your were in your you know find themselves in the situation you were in, I think we need to speak to our city council people and ask them why they're not going into these places and finding out why the services are not being rendered according to what the city guidelines are, and um, I think that's what's important because we have a lot of council people in the Bronx that do and select different things that they want to work on and I think that the shelter system needs to be a major priority for them. They need to go into those women's shelters, those family shelters and see why these places are like that and why people are feeling so unsafe. Yeah. And what's mm -hmm. going on going yeah. on with that. MZ, do you see any programs that really are working? There's some pro programs out there that's working. Um you know, they uh, several programs that find people that are homeless and if you've been home if they contact you three nights in a row and you've been homeless I don't know the name of the program. If they see you three times a night and you've been homeless in that particular area, they'll help you find a room. 
They'll help you get a voucher, help you get a room, and you can stay there for a while. Um, it, it's plenty of programs out there, but the problem is information. People don't have the information. A lot of people just don't know. A lot of people don't, you know, sit down or take time to listen to street soldiers and find out what are they doing about the homeless. What information do you have for the homeless? Hopefully after this, you know, you're able to put something up on your website where people can go and look and say, all right, well, I can go here, I can go there, I can send people there. Can they call 311? Because there's a lot yes. of good, there's a lot of good organizations, a lot of good private or private and private public organizations right. that are doing a lot of work too. They in are. terms of in terms of helping people rebuild, but it's like a holistic approach. The problem is everything is a process. There's no instant cure for homelessness. It's a process. And does everybody want to sit down in a shelter for 90 days and go through the process, do a ILP, do a physical, get a TB shot? Does everybody want to go through that process to eventually get a room or an apartment? So that's the most important thing that people have to remember. It's a process. There's no instantaneous nothing. Only thing that's instantaneous is possibly if a person is HIV positive and they come to New York from out of state and can prove they're HIV positive, they have a thing called a back door. You come here, you prove you're HIV positive, you show them your viral load, they can find you a room immediately. We're talking about within a week, but that's for HIV positive. And she pointed out earlier, there are people that are called bug chasers that come to New York and try to get the virus, or, or young kids that try to get the virus so they can go and say, all right, I got the virus, get me a room, get me a house, pay my rent for the rest of my life. And then they, get ben and then they can get all kinds of benefits too, right? So they think. So they so think. So they think. You get enough money just to survive. That's, get enough that's crazy. Just to survive, Dr. Lisa. But what to his point that there's no overnight cure that this is that it's very involved. What do you see working from the work that you do? I actually see that at least for from the foster care um, child welfare system that they are developing housing that youngsters can transition to, and they actually hold an occupancy agreement or a lease so that they can sort of prepare themselves for something more permanent. The fact that we're developing more low income housing, but I think there's also policy issues. We we really need to look at family policy. How does family policy help to inform like some? more collaboration and partnerships within families so that we can support one another. I think also before people get to that point where they're actually moved, they're getting put out or evicted, what is the intervention? I think it's at that point there's really nothing for that person who may be the working poor. Like there's nothing for someone at the point where they're about to lose everything where they can go to, somewhere where they can go to and say help me before I get to this space of homelessness, and I feel like that's where the government needs to respond. Is to have some intervention resources. Intervention Real quick, what do you think that? about that, MZ? Uh, they have uh, several of them, uh, several places that you can go to. But again, it's a process. You, if you, uh, if you're getting ready to get evicted, there's certain organizations you can go to. You mentioned the Bronx. I, um, I don't want to say an organization, but there's several organizations you can go to in the Bronx and say, "Yo, I'm in arrears. I'm getting ready to be evicted. What can I do?" That's still a process. You're still looking at 30, and it's maybe still an eligibility days. process. Right. So it's still an eligibility her. process. Not, but back to her point, income. where she's middle income, she right. no, you're not eligible. No, middle class, you can't. I believe it's somewhere income. around 31, 30, 31, 30, 31 to 33,000, possibly lower that you have to be making in order to be eligible. Who can survive on $33,000? In New York City, right. I process payroll for a living. Who can live off of $33,000? Well, After something... taxes, you're making about $18,000. Absolutely. Rent alone, one bedroom is $1,400. The cost right. of living in New York is, is exuberant, but that's something that we need to talk to people about. That's something that we need to table. If you expect me to come here with thirty-one dollars to $33,000 and then possibly get a voucher, 
that needs to be discussed. That's whole part of it. it, and it all comes down to again the the housing. The There's housing only shorts. about four exactly. states where you yeah. can even survive on minimum wage. Right, so exactly. It's like it's. Unbelievable. And to her point, right. there's not a lot of housing available. No, there isn't. That's yeah. that's one thing everyone agrees on. Well, this is what we need to ask the mayor. What is he doing? What is he doing? What changes is he going to do? They're building more shelters, not housing. Building more shelters. Well, anyway, um, I want to thank you all for being with us for this episode of Street Soldiers, helping us understand this enormous problem and also that there are some solutions. Um, but we definitely need more. Melody, thank you so much for thank being with so us. Much, we appreciate Lisa. it. And appreciate your courage in speaking out yeah, about your you. personal experience. Um, MJ, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it, sharing your experience as well. Thank My you. Pleasure. And Dr. Elise, always great to have you and, and get that big picture and, and uh, therapeutic view. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. Let's push for peace. <laughs>